Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm Justin. This evening, I'm joined by a very special guest, the humble host of Rune Soup, magician of chaos, and author of Starships and the Chaos Protocols, the one and only Mr. Gordon White. Gordon, how the hell are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure's all mine, sir. So, Gordon, I suppose we should start at the beginning with a bit of variation of the Rune Soup icebreaker. What sort of films, books, comics, etc. were you consuming as a kid to sort of cultivate your creativity? Interesting. Fairly, fairly voracious. I ended up doing a film degree. So and I've written books and, and so on. So I was definitely like bookish and, and filmish from from a young age. I read Lord of the Rings independently at age six. I've obviously read it one or two times since then and realized how little I picked up, but I nevertheless finished it. I persevered and, and read that at age six, Now, I, which is an interesting experience because you have, well, I have now no memory of before Lord of the Rings. So it just kind of emerges from the gloom of early childhood. And I remember one example, so I must've read it in the first year of high school, that was in primary school. And I didn't know what a Wayne was, W-A-I-N, when I first read it. But by the time I'd come to read it again, I realized that was like a wagon and so on. So there's this strange, very edge of my memory. At the edge of my memory is this kind of like gloomy Middle Earth. So that's, I guess, obviously was was transformative in, in its own way. I mean, I still adore it. I've been to Tolkien's grave multiple times. I'd, I'd make the habit every time I'd go to Oxford to swing by and say hello. And yeah, so that obviously from a fiction perspective was one of them. The film that made me decide to go to film school was Jurassic Park. Oh. <laughs> Seeing that as a kid, but it, at the time, and, and again, you can, it's sort of held up. It is the perfect encapsulation of what a simple Hollywood story done well can be, right? Right. Uh, in in terms of things that I watched and rewatched over and over again, there was plenty of things like early childhood stuff, like, you know, He-Man and, and so on. Never much for the Transformers. I, I think I've been allergic to technocracy from the very beginning. Mm, yep. um, I found robots dumb. Um, so, <laughs> and given how my life went, I, I generally, turns out I like the blonde 18 year old in his underwear with a cat. <laughs> right okay much more um, relatable that, yeah that's that ended up being its own kind of predictive in terms of yeah so that would be it like if, if i think back on on a transformative novel but i i read really really widely it was lord of the rings the film that made me go to film school was jurassic park but i i have watched I, I mean, I, I did a film degree, so I, I, I like I like the medium in, in general, I guess. Oh, wait, 90s TV. Gosh, this opens up another one, right? <laughs> Buffy. <laughs> oh, Buffy. Angel, yeah. Northern Exposure, Twin Peaks. I mean, the 90s, X-Files, the 90s was perfection for television. So mm. I'm trying to work out, what, what was I doing in the 90s? <laughs> oh, yeah. Watching X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did your worldview take a magical shift? Is there an event or a eureka moment you can point to as a catalyst? So it jumped around and I wasn't, maybe I wasn't consciously looking for it at the time, but I was 13 and it was a Saturday morning and I sort of sat bolt upright in bed. And I was, because I like money uh, and I don't like soccer, I was refereeing soccer rather than playing it because you got paid to do that. 
as a kid. So I was like 13 and that meant you could referee up to under 10s and then you could be a linesman for the older ones. So it's actually quite good money when you're like 12 and 13. And something happened in that early morning dream state, which I can't remember and have resisted doing hypnosis to find out what. And I'm like, I need to go and buy some books. And, and and magic books like it, it was druidry like it's like go and buy a druid book and i'm like mm, all right this is a bit weird but i took my money down the hill uh, stole a bit from mother's purse as well because it wasn't quite enough and books are expensive in australia and went down the hill to an independent bookstore which is no longer there but was amazing in a way that independent bookstores used to be and i bought a bunch of what turned out to be kind of terrible books on on wicca and druidry and so on and a packet of cigarettes because i was 13 <laughs> and uh and sat in the grandstand and, and sort of read and smoked and and that was it but so the thing is as i moved through my magical journey which i'm definitely still on i have a frame of understanding for things that have happened prior to that so some past life memories some sleep paralysis hag attack screen memory type stuff that happened earlier in my childhood that I didn't have a frame of reference for. And I wasn't consciously looking for it, but the sort of how did I get into magic is, isn't linear. As I said at the beginning, I'm a listener of Room Soup, and that's initially how I found THC. And of course, we've had Greg on here recently, so I'm very familiar with the chats between you two. For my money, you're the best in the biz when it comes to breaking down these mind-blowing magical concepts for novices like me. For our listeners out there who may not be familiar, what is magic? And how can it be applied to our lives? I've, I've updated how I describe this in the last couple of years, but I'll actually kind of go through the description from the very beginning. Magic is a culture-specific framework of understanding for natural human capabilities, which at the present moment, Western culture pretends aren't real. So... Uh, spirit contact, telepathy, and so on. And in fact, if you look around the world, the number of quote-unquote magical powers is quite conserved. There's sort of trafficking with the spirits, visiting the spirit world, seeing the future, and and causing some kind of change in addition to spirits. And that's sort of, so there's like three and a half things, really, maybe four. And you find them everywhere. And you know, we don't just find them everywhere for the last sort of 120 years of parapsychology and so on. We find it there. We find it in the data behind the Stargate program. We find it anywhere. And, and in fact, Dr. Tug says that the evidence for telepathy is 10 times greater, statistically speaking, than the evidence that aspirin uh, reduces your risk of heart attacks. So, and it's, it's not just that. When you describe it that way, it puts it back into everyone else's lived experience of, of really common things. Like telephone telepathy happens with 95% of, for whatever reason, and I've, I've spoken to Dr. Dean Radin, who I think is the world's best parapsychologist and maybe best ever. For whatever reason, there's about 4.5% of the human population who is just incapable. Like it, it literally might be a brain damage thing. It, it might be something that doesn't work in their specific brains that can't do any of this stuff but otherwise 95 percent of people can and it's typically things like dream experience but also two-thirds of americans will at least admit to hearing the disembodied voice of um, someone in their family or whoever who's passed and so on so you look at it and go magic is the word we use for that and how and why i've updated that because i used to just stop there and go so magic is that's what it is. It's, it's a culture-specific description of human capacity, which is true. However, the other thing is the word magic, obviously magia, 
if you go back through European languages, we get it from how we understood magus, mages, and so on. The, the, basically the three kings, if you will, from the Bible, but like the, this sort of Babylonian Eastern import into Europe of star magic and astrology and so on. But it, consequently, the word itself is quite othering. So all through European history, from like Rome onwards, so obviously European history was before that, but we'll just start with Rome. Magic is a separate thing to normal culture, and that's wrong. <laughs> so when I say magic's like a culture-specific way of describing natural human capacities, if you go to, and, and Aboriginal Australia certainly had clever men in the same way that you'll find like shamans and, and curanderos in, in, in Amazonia, but everyone is having dream experiences and everyone is talking to their spirits and so on. So it isn't even, so I kind of make the joke now, I guess it's a joke, that magic doesn't even exist in the Amazon or Aboriginal Australia, because we it's, it's almost a pathologized term. For us, magic is, we, we've separated it out, but elsewhere, whilst they might have shamans and sorcerers, it, it's almost like there's no word for magic because that's just, they live in, in a living cosmos, right? And so it's sort of interesting, but I, I begin with the magic is a culture-specific description of things that science simultaneously both found and pretends doesn't exist. And that's true, but also because no one else went through that kind of what Whitehead called our last three provincial century, uh, centuries, that sort of idiotic idea that your mind is trapped in a monkey skull and has no relation to the rest of your experience and that the stuff that goes on in there is fake. Like it's the stupidest idea from a theory of mind or philosophy humans have ever come up with and, and we've come up with some dumb ones, right? So ma like magic and parapsychology and all that sort of stuff is downstream and trying to recover from like a scab, a, a serious injury which didn't happen that way anywhere else. Well said. While we're on that subject, I want to touch a bit on magical systems, you know, albeit you have chaos magic, hermeticism, Gnosticism, and so on and so forth. There's plenty of folks that currently are have practiced one or multiple ones of these systems that, with success. So how can we explain that? And how would you recommend someone navigate through this, these systems? Interesting. All of these systems are an over-description. And, and even if you drop down into each one of them, so like Gnosticism didn't exist as anything modern in the last couple of centuries, academic category. Same thing with Neoplatonism, right? So any of these sort of schools from which you can kind of situate yourself and perform magic in the sense of interacting with the living cosmos of which you are a part, they didn't even really have names at the time. Um, so these are all kind of like academic distinctions. Same thing with hermeticism. They're all kind of modern category. And this comes back to like how our language and, and European history have kind of pathologized things that we didn't, no one else really did. So this is my way of saying from a recommendation perspective, the most important thing is to situate that historically so that there aren't discrete or distinct flavors of magic, like they are sporting teams or something, or Magic the Gathering, right? Like, so there's not the mountain magic, although technically there is, but it's, it's not mountain magic and swamp magic and so on. It's you operate, you are part of a living cosmos discovering itself is a way to think about it that allows you to go, okay, well, I'm actually resonating with this. And generally that's how you see it elsewhere, particularly from an animist perspective. Animist cultures, that's a problematic term, which we'll just leave to the side for now, don't need to have, it doesn't damage your experience of reality to have someone else have a different experience of reality. And that, if anything, is like a, a real baseline assumption, operating assumption of animism, which is that you, be, by virtue of being a being in a universe of being, your 
experience and understanding of what's going on is wholly valid, right? And that's fundamentally different from saying everyone has their own truth because that kind of situates everyone in a meaningless universe of no truths. And that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that by virtue of being a being in relation to other beings, your experience of truth will be different. So the most important thing if people are like, well, I'm vibing on this, is to not get caught up in categorization right away. You may find one, and, and a lot of people do, you may find a strict kind of quote-unquote magical school, initiatory traditions, and so on, like Vodun and whatever, that you're like, oh, I'm really, I'm really into this, and then you drop into it, and that's cool. And you sit with that, and then probably it's not good in the same way you don't want to put sausages in your black forest cake. It's like, if you've been taught how to make a black forest cake, make the damn cake, and you can like do sausages elsewhere, but that's a sort of, there are modalities within magic that are quite self-contained and that's for their own efficacy and experience and if you try to blend it it's a mess but if you're just interested in like cake and sausages there are both of these things exist right and so that that's the most important part is you're gonna have to use labels to navigate a cosmos that doesn't have labels well said and i think we're already touching a bit on this one here one of the more intriguing ideas you've put forth that has really just stuck with me this was on thc as well i believe an older episode was alien ghost <laughs> this growth like grows from the premise that if magic is present here then it has to be present you know throughout the galaxy and beyond can you break down some of the implications of a magical universe well yeah so it's uh, and it kind of was based on something jacques valet wrote in his diaries in the 70s which was like what if god is like a low local space-time effect for our little corner of the universe. And it's a usual French kind of pontification. But it, it does mean that if it holds here, it's a good premise. It's a good logical premise. If something holds here, it holds everywhere. Now that's a premise. Again, that's not a finding. So, and, and I mean, science operates on that. It's like, well, how we observe gravity here, we assume we make the conscious assumption is the case elsewhere in the galaxy, right? And as far as we can tell, it is, despite the fact that we can't, you just still can't explain gravity. It's that thing Terence McKenna said, which is science asks us to grant them one free miracle and they'll explain the rest. And that's like, gravity just is. So you can, you can work out gravitational, uh, effects based on the mass of different bodies and so on but mass is another one that just kind of is so if the universe is magical and i think that's it's rather than rather than there being magic in the universe i think the universe is magic right so i think it is a living being but there are things that happen in living universes like you don't um, die when your physical body is kind of done and that is again much like gravity presumably the case with non-physical non-human beings right so like literal proverbial alien. And I think that is the case. And certainly in the sort of wilder edges of practical magic, uh, which includes not just Westerners who you'd think, so you immediately jump to like a new age idea there where you can channel ghosts from the Pleiades or whatever. And that's, that's certainly true. But you get an understanding of star beings and star people all around the world. So for the Ananu and Burong and other Aboriginal people, the stars are the campfires of their ancestors. And having been out on desert on desert Ananu country uh, where the stars are so close, you you want to duck. It's just incredible in, in Central Australia, as you might expect. It's just astounding. You understand it on a you experience reality that way. So that we use the word believe wrong. Like the Ananu believe the stars are the campfires of their ancestors, and and that word is a betrayal because the second half of that sentence that's never said is 
but we really know their stars. And so it, it actually kind of has this, but we really know, and by the way, we've got stars wrong anyway, like this sort of um, burning balls of gas kind of idea. What we should say, and, and we should do it for our own kind of calisthenic exercise to remind ourselves of this, is the Ananu experience stars as the campfires of their ancestors. We experience the campfires of their ancestors as stars because belief is too weak a word, right? It's actually how we experience reality. This comes back to the, the animism thing. Now, what I find deeply intriguing about the idea that the Ananu experience stars as the campfires of their ancestors is that it's true, right? Like even in the sort of denatured and, and wrong, but you know, all, all songs about reality are wrong. Materialist science, the matter that makes up whatever matter is life down here comes from up there so it's that kind of classic we're all made of stardust thing so and it and again coming back to we don't necessarily have time right but let's just go with the official reality version of it stars are old and so the further out in space you look to some extent the further back in time you're looking because you're seeing earlier and earlier starlight so we have a shit version like a, a denatured demagic version of the Ananu experience. And I find that really compelling. So coming back to what I was saying to um, Greg on the show, all of this rather implies that there are such things as alien ghosts, right? And, and, in, and in a living universe where space-time magic appears to be a way you can be in a universe and not, bow, not be bound by our current understandings of space and time. So what that means is not only are there alien ghosts, but they could be, maybe, are, who knows, in some kind of contact with the right kind of humans and, and so on. Gordon, in your estimation, where do ETs fit into the spirit world? Where is the line drawn between, say, an ancestral spirit, an elemental, and then an alien? There isn't a line. Again, it's one of those things if you go far enough back, or crucially, which you can do in certain schools of shamanism, far enough forward, so that whatever, like, what is a human going to look like in five million years' time, and, and on how many planets are we going to be, and, and, and so on, right? So again, you can deal with much longer time frames in inside magic, and and in because magic gives us a close approximation or closer approximation of how indigenous cultures experience time. So on the one hand, you can't. And on the one hand, and on the other hand, why you make the distinction for practical reasons. So like, as in, I'm going to do a specific kind of enchantment. So there's a highly recommended thing for people to do is to get right with their ancestors one way or the other. So doing ancestral lineage repair in after the work of someone like Dr. Daniel Four, whatever it happens to be, that is typically experienced as your um, your human lineage, right? But again, you step into, and I'm in some non-human lineages from a, a initiatory perspective anyway. So I have, I now have ancestors that aren't humans right? They, don't, they might not necessarily be Marvin the Martian. So it's a question of you don't make the distinction because you can't, but if you are making the distinction, it should be for reasons other than categorization. So it's like, well, I'm going to heal the physical human ancestral lineages because a whole bunch of ancestral curses flow down into our lives, that kind of stuff. And you can, you, it is your job as a human being in the physical to try to ameliorate that like we've, we've sort of abrogated our responsibility to the dead in a lot of ways so when you die you don't just become some sort of elevated super being right and for again going back to europeans for 140,000 years we knew that and we would take care of our ancestors and then like in the last 10,000 years we're like well ah, fuck it i'm sure it'll i'm sure it'll work out fine and how's that going right <laughs> so that's where you can and can't make those sort of distinctions. Now, what's even more interesting is with 
the shamanic capacity to sort of step outside of time to just describe it that way for now. You can work with off-planet lineages because life came from off-planet. And again, the language of it is different, but if you if you look at the Maya day keepers and, and other kind of cultures that have a really profound experience of time and stars together, so sort of like astrology, you'll find that. And you'll find that, yeah, 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 the star nations and 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 our off-planet ancestors and so on. And and it's it is a, a living universe discovering itself one way or the other. Now, this is just a sidebar here. Do you have any interest or have you considered writing fiction? Yeah, I'm actually two thirds of the way through a novel, which in the funny way of these things, and I don't know what's going to happen with it. I was writing it before 2020 happened. And in fact, parts of it, great chunks of it are set in a part of Spain that I had to essentially flee London when they started closing borders and so on in March of last year. But I was going to go to Spain and then Southern France and all these places that are in the book. And uh, obviously I can't, and it won't be for a while. But not just that, the book exists in a world before vaccine passports and all this other technocratic hijack. So I don't know how to finish it because the stuff that happens in it can't happen anymore right and it and I've, I've spoken to novelists about it and they're like no you should do it like access well an approximation of reality is the least interesting thing in a novel and i'm like that's true to some extent but remember i, I hate friends but like you watch friends and you see the twin towers in the introduction and it's really jarring you think oh and it's not that that episode is ruined the episodes are terrible anyway it doesn't matter but it's jarring and it takes you out of it and if the book is explicitly about you know travel and adventure across multiple countries and all this kind of stuff that is like basically never coming back at least over the next <laughs> decade or ever in a way that's recognizable what do i do with that book i don't know while we're on writing it's not hard to find a writer that's had odd occurrences surrounding their stories uh, i do a bit of writing myself and i've had interesting things happen scenes that play out years later are characters yeah. actually come into life so yeah in your opinion what is the magical connection there between writing and these manifestations this is again it, it's everything um, rather than one thing right so if you live in a magical universe that means that you have a capacity to experience time as something other than linear and as we sort of said at the beginning we've pathologized that but like everyone does that now how that plays out from a cultural expression perspective again if we look elsewhere around the world it's normal rather than abnormal for that to happen so this is an oversimplification but we'll go with it so if some aboriginal australian praxis involve when you wake up you will create something in response to the dreams you've just had and it might be like a sand painting, it might just be a little whistle or, or whatever. But the whole point is to demonstrate to the beings around you that you yourself are a being that can kind of move from the dreaming realm into the physical. So the whole kind of point, or the dreaming realm to the waking is a better way of saying it. So the whole sort of point is to bring from the unconscious into the conscious these certain things. And, and, and that's what a human does, right? So that's what Jung did with the Red Book. So it, if you actually look at the physicalization of the Red Book from his inner experiences, from his active imagination, heading into his own imaginal and encountering biblical beings and, and all this kind of stuff. What he actually did afterwards was write it out and, and paint them and so on. So it was it is a bringing into the waking of something that happens in the imaginal. And that appears to be a thing humans do, like capital D, do, right? And because we don't know that or we've forgotten it, when we go to create in a Western context, be it write a novel, compose music, whatever it happens to be, we, we move into an experience of a living universe 
very often without the language to understand it because everyone else again to make things to bring from the imaginal into the physical is sacred it's not just sacred it's the thing humans do autonomically i think like breathing so that's my answer to it is there's nothing necessarily special about it you can over describe it i mean bob wilson wrote really well about what would happen to him particularly in cosmic trigger he wrote it about what happened to him and the things that would show up in his books that happen in real life and so on and that i've just completed a book that i sort of had to write like that as well because the writing of the book is in the book. Because if you're writing about a living universe and the creation of stuff, then it it's it does get caught into the into the one thing. So it's more it's more showing up to those experiences for yourself when they happen and validating them. Like it's not you're not in error necessarily in going. Oh, I'm I'm imagining that. But certainly, like my novel, what's so weird about it is that it, it is literally. <laughs> point by point or location by location locations that tend to have to be very prominent in this whole kind of like great reset narrative long before at least we were publicly aware of it and i'm like okay that's weird uh, <laughs> so i don't know what to do with the book but it was it happened that way like people would show up in your life or wouldn't that were kind of like that and it's just if you take creation seriously and that doesn't mean not have fun with it if you realize that you are in that really tolkien-esque sense doing what the creator did you're you're um you are co-creating a sub-creation and that is an act that is in resonance with the existence of the universe in the first place then it would be surprising and in fact you could use it as an indicator that you've made shit if that isn't happening to you in the creative process you're probably not drinking from that deeper well i wanted to ask you is there a personal anecdote that you could share or maybe a magical moment you had earlier in your studies that sort of blew your mind any strange synchronicities early on that kept you moving forward yeah 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 so the very first time uh and this was basically days we, we picked the story up with the smoking 13 year old the very first time i attempted some kind of ritual in the yard of my um, parents home in newcastle australia which is on a hill overlooking the beach very nice but it was leveled because it was on a hill so i had this sort of grass level to myself and there were rocks uh, that i'm like okay i'm gonna you know, I'm I'm some sort of Celtic pagan now. I'm going to create a stone circle with the, the rocks that were there. And the grass was about 25 centimeters high, almost a foot high. So I'm, I'm moving these rocks around. And as I did, and I as I'd completed the circle, what I would dis still describe as a fairy, but like some sort of short being emerged physically. Like, and so I got a physical manifestation, like from and out of the grass. It was almost like predator. It actually formed itself of the grass, but it moved. And I'm like, wow. So I guess this happens every time. It doesn't. Um, but like literally the first time I attempted to make a magic circle to begin this kind of journey, I got a physical manifestation of like some sort of foot high or a bit shorter fairy being. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, this shit is, uh, there's something to all of this. <laughs> and that definitely, that will keep you going. If you get physical manifestations, that will certainly keep you going. You usually don't. Uh, and I like, I like the Amazonian approach to rather than calling it physical and non-physical, that's all come out of the European idea of the separation of mind and body. They make the divide between visible and invisible, right? Mm. And that's a better way of doing it. Because what it means is, because especially when you begin magic, you do expect Hollywood results. You expect it to look like lightning and demons showing up and what have you. In an Amazonian context, making the divide between the visible and invisible, when you call the beings, they're there. Sometimes you might see them, most of the time you don't. And they don't make the distinction because we make the cut between physical and non-physical. We don't think they're there unless they're there physically. And that is a very, very rare occurrence. 
And that that is the case across all paranormal uh, phenomena, right? So two thirds of all American abductions are self-reported as being non-physical, as in people are aware they were taken somewhere, but aware they were still in their bed or something, right? And my hag attack experience as a kid and those screen memories, same situation. I wasn't physically removed from the bed, but I was definitely somewhere else, right? And if you do visible invisible, it's a better it's a better divide to understand that you're always in in that living universe but that being said when they do show up physically it does that puts some gas in the tank to to keep you going but any of these things people typically resonate with one path up the mountain or another at least to begin with and it might be astrology it might be like taking astrology seriously getting a proper hellenistic natal chart done or you might spend a couple of months learning that and all and you you learn fairly quickly on that there is definitely something to this it doesn't necessarily mean the universe behaves astrologically who knows but it's the same thing with magic or anything remote viewing you will get some very early profound experiences that will keep you going to the point that you can graph it right and and dr targ did so when he looked over the sort of variations in accuracy of the remote viewers in the stargate program the first one or two times someone would attempt remote viewing they get it between 70 and 80 percent accurate as a hit and then the next few times it would be less than chance so it would have dropped to, they, they became awful so you were better off guessing below 50 percent accuracy and then six or so times later it leveled off to whatever their and it, we don't know how this works right whatever their natural capacity was so ingo was back above 70 percent right but ordinarily people would be in around the 60 to 65 percent range and they'd sort of level off there but the first few times they did it knocked it out of the park. And that's the case for learning anything, it turns out. You can do the same with tennis or golf is a better example. Like you, if you've never done golf before and you go and do it, you're like, this is easy. Why, why are doctors and dentists complaining about this their whole lives? <laughs> then you go and do it again and go, wow, this is terrible. I hate this. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't like golf, but I, I know that's the shape of it. And then you kind of settle into, I'm not that good at it and I'm not that bad at it. And that appears to be the case for everything, including magic and remote viewing. So what was 13-year-old Gordon's reaction to seeing that manifestation? Did you shit your pants? Did you, were you scared? I found it completely normal. I found it completely normal. <laughs> I'm like, oh, awesome. And also, because you, when you're a teenager, especially early teens, you're like looking for what it is that makes you awesome, right? And I'm like, oh, well, this clearly makes, I'm, I'm naturally very good at this. And this is, and, and it, I remember thinking that. I remember thinking, wow. Certainly wasn't scared. The only times in my kind of, dare I say, early magical career that I was scared was that I was scared of being found out. Not by friends. I'd tell them all because, again, I formed, my, I was forming my identity around it. But, like, you know, you have to kind of hide witchcraft books under your bed where people normally hide pornography. Yeah. Uh, and so it was that kind of being. And I'd have to, if I was doing any kind of what I called at the time astral travel, but it's better called um, journeying, you'd sort of have to listen and make sure everyone was asleep and then get up and kind of like whisper the incantations and do all that. So it was it was that more than the actual results. The actual results were, I'm, it's weird. This is how magical results happen. It's been two decades more now and they simultaneously it never gets old when they uh, when the magical results happen um, so you're always astonished when they do but not because you don't think they're going to happen you just the experience of arriving magical results feels like the most natural thing in the world but also feels like the first time it's very odd uh, but consequently that's how it felt when it's kind of like weird magical stuff it was, and it's the dumbest like there's a whole book in it 
a boring book. I think most of it's in blog posts now anyway, but I remember I would have been, this is another cigarette story. How weird. (laughs) I would have been like 16 or 17 and a guy, and I knew who did it because he got ratted out, stole a pack of cigarettes from my bag at school and denied it. This was on a Friday and I was furious because I was going to my friend's house. At that time, it was actually more difficult to get them. I just had this crooked friend who could get me them when I was 13. So it was a lot of money and they were difficult to get. And I'm like, ah, that's what... That's what my weekend plans were going to be. So I was furious. So I went home and I bought, as usually as errant teens do, I had the Satanic Bible and the Satanic Rituals and so on, like the LeVay books and the Satanic Witch, which is still a good book. And so I cursed this guy using LeVay stuff for literally stealing cigarettes out of my bag. The next day at soccer, he broke his leg in three places. So I have stories like that where I'm like, hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, that's maybe the closest I would get to not necessarily being scared, but like, hmm. This might be bigger than I thought initially with my 15, 16 year old mind, because I'm like, I, I'm not saying I regret breaking his leg. I just, I wasn't sure I wanted it to go that far. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what I wanted to happen. I wanted it to be bad, but now he's like on crutches for quite a while. Like it was, it was a bad break, right? Good thing he was young. He's fine now. He's a policeman now, actually, but like. Yeah. So you get experiences like that. And that's the closest I got to being scared. Exactly. It was more like, ooh, this might be bigger than I, I I guess I don't at the age of 16 know absolutely every single thing about magic yet. (laughs) Right. I don't think that guy stole any more cigarettes. That's true. We are like, (laughs) yeah. Um, Like everyone else from college, we've lost touch, but I remember coming back to my hometown from where I was studying and we had friends in common and we were drinking and we joked about it. And I I was joking because like he knew about it when we got back to school but i was joking that i was the reason he became a cop like he you know he turned from his life of crime (laughs) (laughs) definitely relate to the hiding of the books as someone who was raised by a southern baptist grandmother in the bible belt of the united states uh uh, under my bed was filled with demonology books and such that i hope my grandmother never discovered (laughs) yeah yeah and it's actually a really good place to hide them because Grandmothers and mothers won't look under there because they don't want to have the conversation about pornography. Exactly. So you that literally is what went through my head is like, they don't want to talk to me about pornography. So that's where I'm going to put my witchcraft books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my grandmother would much prefer pornography be under my bed than demonology books. True, 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 true. <laughs> but then she'd be forced to have that conversation. And say, ah. yeah. so, you hide them somewhere that they don't ever want to look. Uh, right. That, that, seem, that seems to have worked. So in, in your magical journey, have you experimented with psychedelic? Oh, very much so. Um, what, what were your experiences? I've never done them myself. And when I told Greg, uh, the, he basically laughed at me because of the way I look. And- yeah, that's true. It is surprising. And the, <laughs> and the content of the show. No, I love it. I, I, I think they are the most, all kinds of them, the most profound. So I did like teenage stuff like LSD and so on. But like I've been on a full ayahuasca dieta in Peru and the jungle for months and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's. More commonly, um, psilocybin mushrooms in in heroic doses and up. My most heroic dose is 14 dried grams, and that'll definitely get you there. I love them. Uh, I I really resonate with them. Uh, I'm I'm initiated or, or being trained in and certified in a lineage that doesn't necessarily use them. So that in like Andean shamanic energy medicine and so on. The Andes didn't really have ayahuasca. That's not necessarily true historically because they would actually send people into the jungle to do it. But that's my way of saying you actually don't need them. Although I'm kind of of the Terence McKenna camp, which is there's nothing like it. If you want to know 
and I, I have this in, in Chaos Protocols. If you want to participate in magic, you need an event that I, that I call becoming invincible. You need to have something happen in your life that in that is irrefutable. You don't need to know what it is, but you need to know that something happened that falls permanently outside of what official reality will allow. And I, I joke in the book that you can break into an abandoned mental hospital in the middle of the night with a few friends and a Ouija board. And by 3 a.m. when you're running screaming from said mental asylum, you will, you will never again know that whatever spirits are, they are a kind of real. Now, I don't recommend that because that's dumb and <laughs> you can bring things home with you. But another example of that, like a good example of that is sitting with a medicine like ayahuasca in, in a proper ceremonial context with a proper lineage shaman and, and so on, you will come away from that experience knowing irrefutably that the physical, our, our perception of the physical rather than the physical world is this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of everything that's going on. And we're sort of embedded in this much bigger spirit world. Uh, and with the, almost like the very tip of this very, very large iceberg, except it's it's a circular iceberg. It's sort of pointing in rather than up. So I love them. And when I say I love them, I don't take them that often. And when I do, I do it in a ceremonial capacity. Right. I have a show, a solo show from last year or the year before called How and Why to Do Mushrooms, which sort of goes through my process because mushrooms are much more enjoyable than ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca is an ordeal. It's transformative, but it's a medicine and and a uh, a very confronting one mushrooms done correctly can do that but but the second half of a mushroom experience is a lot of fun so broadly speaking i do the ceremony stuff at the beginning and and get my lessons from the mushroom and then because uh, entheogens alter your which i mean that's how they work they alter your perceptions so you then go and do things when you're done learning you eat pineapple and and drink coconut milk and taste all these things and it's indescribable because you are like with the mushroom you can experience it one of the reasons it likes to tangle with us is it doesn't it knows how to be a kind of like star spanning ancient hyperdimensionally contactable organism it doesn't know how to be a monkey uh, it doesn't have that much experience of it and why why it operates the way it does is to participate in that dance so you 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 have the benefit of experiencing what the mushroom experiences when you taste these things but i i love them i think and i say i love them i love them as friends allies and colleagues so not right. i love them like i love pizza it's it's not it's not a gluttonous thing i i think they are very important and, and transformative. Would you say that your first experience was the most potent? No, my first experience was LSD at about the age of 16 or 17. It was a reasonably good dose, uh, but it wasn't. Again, this is in that age where I already thought I knew everything about magic and so on. Uh, my dad's a psychiatrist, and apparently this is a Mark Twain quote, although who knows, but it's sort of leave home before you turn 18 when you still know everything. And and I was definitely I had I did leave home at eighteen, but that was definitely where my head was at the time. So I didn't get. And LSD is interesting. LSD isn't a teacher in the same way ayahuasca or um, psilocybin mushroom is. LSD really is, as Huxley put it, like with LSD, what you learn is that your perception is ordering reality. That there sort of is no reality outside of human perception because you're not encountering another being. You are altering a natural human capacity to sort of organize reality into a predictable way. So it has its own medicine to it, but it's not a medicine in the way uh, ayahuasca is. And it would have been definitely the jungle um, that was my most intense, as you would expect, antiogenic journey so far. 
Gordon, I'm sure you're familiar with Chris Bennett and his work, Libra 420. I just wanted to ask you, where do you think marijuana fits in ritualistic magic? Does it have its place? Definitely does. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I I don't, I want to like weed. I, I mean, I'm pro legalization and all that kind of stuff. So it's not that necessarily. Marijuana as a being in a ceremonial context, for me, it's really, really good combined with mantras in particular. And I think, and this is just a take, right? I think marijuana remembers. So what we have in some archaeological sites from about 4,000 BC to 7,000 BC, are these sort of shaman tombs in, in Eurasia, like north of India, where they found uh, marijuana remains, like marijuana seeds and so on, in the kind of pouch of this shaman or king or whoever. What that means is, and we kind of knew this already, marijuana has been used in a ritual context in the cultures that gave rise to like the Vedas and then after that Hinduism and so on. So I think my take is that when you when you use marijuana, it's the wrong way of describing it, but we'll just go with that, and then ex- uh, and use that in conjunction with some mantras. One, it's a very simple ceremony, but two, you um, some of them, it can you can get quite nauseous and not in the sense of commonly being, you know, greened out or whatever. So yes, I think there's a whole bunch of ways that marijuana can kind of dance with humans in, in, in ceremony. And a, that's the one that works for me. What you learn in, in plant medicine traditions is that in the West, we, we only allow plant medicines to be real if, we, if they have molecules that will respond in our lab experiments to approximate things, right? And that's not how plant spirits work. And in fact, and this is sort of one of those in theory things, so don't try it, but it's not just that when you're using plant medicine, you should ingest the whole organism. It's that depending on your relationship with that particular plant spirit, it can do more or less things. So when you, uh, if you look at how Amazonia arranges its plant medicines and plant teachings, there will be one like uh, Chuchuasi or one particular tree. And if you are a Chuchuasquero, or um, similar, so if you have dieted and have a connection with this particular tree, whilst it has like antimicrobial, anti, antifungal and antidepressant things, if you pull out the molecules, a proper uh, chuchuasquero can get that tree to do a lot of things like cure cancer and so on. So it's sort of the same with mushrooms or marijuana or whatever. If people like marijuana is in, in the sense if they resonate with it, come into relationship with it and see what it wants to do with you. And because I have I have weird plant relationships, it's a joke from the jungle, but one of them is chamomile of all things. Because at the end of the first ceremony, when we were in the jungle, because I, I, I explained how your senses are altered, the shaman will close the ceremony and light a candle in the middle of the maloka, which is the sort of temple in the middle of the jungle where you do these things. And some of his assistants brought in this kind of samovar of this, clearly some sort of exotic magical jungle brew and so it was a tea of some description started handing it out to us sipping and it wasn't just me i could hear people murmuring with amazement and oh this is delicious what exotic amazonian plant are we drinking here and they looked at us someone asked them in spanish and they looked at us and said it's chamomile (laughs) (laughs) so they made us this big jug of chamomile tea and i've never had chamomile like it and now chamomile is a plant being that i have growing all over the farm and and i have a lot and i just think it's the funniest thing that i went into the heart of the upper amazon and came back with chamomile as as a plant ally and I, it's too funny, but that's a really good example. So I have I, now, I did not expect it, but I have quite a good relationship to the point of growing it and drying it and so on with an old lady herbal tea, right? And, right. and it has solar capacities and all this other stuff that when you really step into that relationship, it can do so much more than that. What was your primary reasoning for starting Root and Soup initially? Was it just to sort of teach or did you just want to get your voice oh, out God, there? No. 
So I moved to London two weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed, which was the worst time in the history of money to move to London, because even during the blitz, you could get a job, right? And even the day after the fire, you could get a job. You couldn't get a job. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, my money's running out. And it did run out. And I, I wasted all my money trying to hire, trying to get hired for like several months in London. And God, that was crazy times and there's a the uk australian version of something like craigslist and that's how you pronounce the name craig is called gumtree so it's a free classified website and i ended up finding a job with the bbc on gumtree in a town called bristol which is a couple of hours west of london and so i moved to bristol to work at the bbc and it was half the salary because this is how london works like you you make good money in London, but it's very expensive to live there. Everywhere else is very cheap to live. <laughs> and that was kind of, I'm like, okay, I'm in Bristol. And I was dimly aware that Peter J. Carroll, who's basically one of the two founders of Chaos Magic, either lived or still lived in, in Bristol. And so I sort of got thinking, well, I'm kind of on like Chaos Magic Holy Land. Um, so I'm going to just write a blog about magic and so on. It was There was never any intention to, this was not before podcasting exactly, but more functionally before podcasting. Right. Uh, and so I was just started a blog on my magical experiences and the magical things I did. And it turned out that, so Rune Soup was created 50 meters from... Pete, Car Pete Carroll has a, um, his own business. And RuneSoup was created 50 meters from Pete's uh, workshop. So the apartment building that I was in, the alley behind it was the alley that his business is on. So I not only, so RuneSoup was created at like a, a Chaos Magic Ground Zero by accident, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny, but that's why, like I was there and I had time and it was sort of, it was a, it was a shell-shocked moment because I'd come from, I'd worked my way up to quite a senior level in media in New Zealand before uh, we moved. And so I was really, I, I, and it only happens once because I keep getting made redundant and I'm, I'm very good at it now. But the first time, it was a real shock to my identity that I couldn't get a job because I built my identity around being quite talented in digital media or so on. And London would, would have none of it for three months, right? And, and I didn't get a job. Hilariously, as soon as I moved, then Discovery Channel wanted me to move back. But that's not the point. The point was my ego was destroyed in a way that was really painful at the time, but very healthy. I recommend it. <laughs> and part of my, dare I say, psychological recovery was, and the, I, I'd begun this journey in, in London, was to find the things about me that weren't tied to a career. And I'm like, well, magic's a big part of that. So we also, we started cooking more European stuff because we were in Europe. But the other thing was like, well, magic is, if I'm not like a digital media guy, like if I'm not building, and it's such a dumb thing to do to build your fucking, like I'm, I'm very grateful in the end, I lost all my money and was massively depressed and it was just really, really awful. I'm subsequently grateful for having gone through the experience because you have to climb out of it with the things about you that not just can't be taken away, but have real value. And it doesn't have to be magic. It can be like, well, actually, I like sailing or whatever. Those things that aren't tied to, because you have good jobs, you have bad jobs, whatever. And uh, that was good. So that's where it began. It began with, it began in Bristol as I was trying to reformulate kind of like who I was. Uh, and the name just landed. I think it's cute. Like alphabet soup, rune soup. Yeah, I'm into it. And it, it sort of grew into its own animal after that. And we're glad that you started it. <laughs> <laughs> One of my goals here with my podcast is to sort of blend all these countercultures, because I'm not saying that if you like horror movies, you like heavy metal. And if you like heavy metal, you like occult stuff. But there's a good chance that you may 
and oh, this probably, huge over. Yeah, you're you probably be open minded to hearing these ideas. So, Gordon, it is the nature of the podcast. What are your favorite horror films? Mm. Again, I'm a film nerd, so I like them all. But I guess I have to be fair and say, if the Alien franchise is categorized as horror, it is. It would be that because I, particularly in Sir Ridley's hands, not James Cameron's hands. Fuck aliens. Um, <laughs> I, I think they are masterpieces of dread, horror, and kind of like ancient alien biblical explorations, uh, particularly Prometheus, I think is perfect. I don't care what anyone says, <laughs> but it would have to be, it would have to be alien. Yeah. I, I love classical horror, classic horror. And so when I watched Bela Lugosi a bunch as a kid, one of the transformative movies I saw as a child, and the reason I started watching Bela Lugosi was um, seeing the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula, Dracula, which again, despite Keanu Reeves, is also an excellent film, right? So Gary Oldman. Um, actually, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it, that was probably the last film before Anthony Hopkins just started phoning in his performances. Like, it seems like he, he sort of gave a shit there. But yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Coppola himself and shooting the entire thing on sound stages to give it that kind of weird claustrophobia and so on. It, it, it's a mean thing to say, but it's true that kind of elevated Keanu um, so that you don't mind. <laughs> mind the reevesness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can kind of, you can kind of get around it. But I, I just found that transformative. The the soundtrack, the beginning, the, the um, watching that in the cinema as a kid where he's like cursing God and saying he will rise from his own death. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm into this. This is really, <laughs> this is really, woo. You, like it's not, it's not camp. It's, it gives you an understanding of why someone would do that, right? To be betrayed by God to, to such a level. It's almost a, this is the, the only Batman stories I like. So I like Batman Begins for that reason because it's a story of radicalization and 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 dracula is a story of, of radicalization so at least the ford coppola one uh, he found that so but yeah it's the alien films i think great answer i'm not going to keep you all day here gordon what's on the horizon for rune soup and for the folks that haven't been paying attention for the last hour where can they find you yeah, runesoup.com. I definitely don't go in for social media these days and, and stopping using social media meant I finished a book in like four months. So I recommend it. Yeah, so Rune Soup, the show is about weekly. What we do have at the moment, which I'm quite enjoying, uh, I am creating on a weekly live collaborative basis, a Lenormand Oracle card deck. So every sort of Thursday evening for most of you, we do a live show on YouTube where we kind of, myself and the artist Colin, um, go through and the one coming up depending on when this is out is the serpent card so we've been able to get deep into kind of like magic and ayahuasca with it but yeah everything's at rune soup whatever we got going on uh, you can find the books there you can find the podcast and, and and all the rest of it gordon white ladies and gentlemen gordon it's been a pleasure to have you man i could talk to you all day but like i said i told you i'd give you an hour so I'm not going to hold you any longer and i'll send you this well what one. an hour it has been thank you very much see ya <laughs>